to Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swithin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we discuss Austrian economics and third worldism. Tim. Today we are going to discuss, as you stated, two things which I think are related, and I want to see if you, Swithin, think they are related. Uh, namely, the Austrian theory of economics, which is which the business cycle, and more particularly the state monopoly fiat banks, which is the central aspects of the Austrian critique of the sort of society writ large in economics, and the dissident Marxist doctrine of third worldism, uh, two of the more unpopular ideas out there. Uh, this will probably annoy both. Uh, will annoy a number of people, but this will probably annoy uh, both the uh, Joe Jordison style libertarians as well as some of the um, Bernie Sanders types. Um, but one of the first points which the third hardcore third worldist Marxists make, which I think is perfectly correct if Marxism is true, of course, if Marxism is true, um, and, explain, and this also explains in a backdoor way the immigration pressures, is the idea that the first world, and for that matter, if you go back to the older parlance, the second world countries, which were much better off, like Soviet Union, North Korea, Cuba, they're much better than, like, say, some third world countries, have a labor aristocracy within them. Uh, workers, even at the worst jobs in the U.S. or U.K., or almost the worst jobs, um, earn more money than everybody else. Now, this can be explained by a variety of factors, uh, even, but it, even if they're doing the same thing at the same skill level, I think the classical economics, the neoclassical, say there's a cost of living and you have to sort of bribe the workers to do something. Uh, so like to cut hair. So you can't outsource hair sort of explains the outsourcing. Explains some of it in my mind. Um, there's also plenty of wrinkles in this GDP. Maybe less is more. Maybe you can't factor in like air, various other factors that are opaque um, out there. But um, in general, you'd say, well, these workers do roughly the same thing and make more money. Um, this annoys first world developed lefties because it more or less says that, the, that they aren't part of the club of victims. Um, there are victims, but a kind of less victim-y. Yes, I use victim-y. Um, now I'll bring up Hans Hoppe's theory of banking. You could call this the Rothbard-Mises theory of banking, but since I know it the best, I will call it the Hoppe theory. And the primary criticism that there's a boom bust, and um, this is manufactured by state banks. I mean, there are, we've sort of discussed this in Is Moldbug, right, about banking episode. Um, and, it's, and this... Hans Hoppe has another lecture entitled The Politics of Central Banking as well, given at the Australian Theses Institute. Um, and, you know, historically, state banks were at least tied to gold in theory. Um, now, again, the various wars, they would go off them. Uh, but this basically went away sometime in 1913, 1970 period. And now we're in a pure fiat system. And the theory roughly states if free banks and free currencies existed, state banks would have very little market share uh, because why would they? they? They have less return and the state has the right to um, um, uh, print or other words, counterfeit money. Um, so like if, you, if, if, if you, why would you put why would you put scarce resources into a good that the state can just keep growing? Uh, if I could print money and do that, um, I would do that, and I could pay for hotels, restaurants, valuable goods, as Hans Hoppe would state. In a way, they've, they've recreated the alchemy theory. Um, they've, they've created something worthless, and they're made it valuable. Now, to get this, the only real way to do it is through the state, 
and the state monopoly banking and state monopoly currencies. Um, so again, Hans Hoppe has another good lecture called What Marx Gets Right. Um, and the Austrian class analysis here is that, and this is this is what differentiates the Austrians from sort of Milton Friedman public choice type libertarian economics, um, is that the state is not just some normal firm. It's a sort of criminal organization. It's a ruling class, to use the Marxist. As Hans Hoppe states, you know, the Marx is famous for saying all of history is a class conflict. Um, but in this regard, the Austrians would agree. They just sort of disagree over who's the exploiting class. Hans Hoppe would, would state there's, you know, there's a number of errors in as well. You also have a lecture of the errors of Marx. Um, the primary error being that that uh, he doesn't really have a theory of non-slavery. Um, um, he, the Austrians and Austrians and Marxists both agree that serfdom and chattel slavery is slavery. But they, you know, Marx sort of engages in a trick. He makes that the original appropriation was wrong, therefore it's all wrong. Um, now, even if it's true, um, you can have a clean. He doesn't even think a clean capitalism is 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 true. He doesn't even Marx Marxist technical Marxists would argue clean capitalism is itself um, uh, exploitative. Now. The most exploitative factor for the Austrians, as, as described above, is central banks. And again, central banks aren't free insofar as you, you don't, unless you unless you have to assume that people are really irrational and that they actually want to give money to the state. Uh, but then again, you wouldn't have to use the coercion. If you get rid of the coercion part of the taxes plus the fiat banking system, then then, then it's just a sort of charity. Um, um, but but the most exploitative part identified by the Austrians is arguably not the military. And this is, this is what's interesting about the banks. This is their main soft institution org. Now, it's, it's only soft superficially. There's a lot of hardness behind it. Um, but, but with this ability to print, you could basically – the state is basically a sort of soft slave master um, by – you know, you can basically walk out to a um, – you just take money, you buy labor products that are scarce, and you get you get the labor products for nothing. This is alchemy. Now, the way this works, and this is best described by what might pronounce it wrong, but the Cantillian effects. As the money goes out from the center, it keeps going out and out, it gets less and less valuable. Um, so the state can't be a super counterfeiter or a super printer because then everyone will lose face. But there's a certain level where the state can just sort of defraud, again, as Bob Murphy debate with an M&T uh, would say, you're making a moral critique there. And Bob Murphy is. Um, um, if the money goes out of the circles, you get less and less of it. So this is where I'm going to tie two things together. Even for all the criticisms that are thrown at central banks, and this is one of the interesting parts, who gets it first? Well, the you know the domestic corporations of a society will get it first. So England will bail out its own corporations with fiat money. U.S. will bail out Boeing. U.S. will bail out uh, rate, you know all its own corporations first. Then it'll be their own taxpayers, the most politically tech connected, and then so on and so on and so on. Who's going to get the money last? Well, the people on the periphery. Um, so I, I think this is an interesting sort of uh, dual is dual point here. You know, again, this comes from the inspiration was Hoppe's "What Marx Gets Right" lecture. Um, what do you make of this, Swithin? Um, 
you know, again, most Americans got some checks. Most Britons got some form of unemployment. But, you know, by de facto of the sort of historical wealth and position of the society gives it gives the U.S. and Britain. Well, Britain less extent. It's more of a now a second order. Um, um, and we're going to discuss sort of internal issues like euro in a little bit. Uh, what do you make of this theory? Is it true? Uh, is it one of the ways that exploitation happens in theory? Is it through central banks? And what are like sort of the foreign politics of this sort of privilege? You know, de Gaulle famously uh, showed up with the Navy to threaten to send a Navy and sort of wanted France to have its own currency viewed as an sort of element of sovereignty. What do you make of this with him? It is certainly the case that uh, fiat uh, money printing from central banks is um, is exploitative. Uh, the Cantillon or the Cantillon effects, it was French, uh, are certainly true. I mean, if you have, as you mentioned, if you have a, <clears throat> you have a basement and you print yourself a million dollars, you can go and buy things you otherwise couldn't have bought. Remember, at this time, the stock of goods and services is constant, which then means that um, the the so that's why you bought yourself a Ferrari. The Ferrari dealers made one more sale than you otherwise would do, so his income goes up, and then that suppose he goes to a two Michelin star restaurant, they do better. He got the higher incomes, but remember, of course, still they've got a constant supply of goods and services. So if you're getting more of it, it will eventually mean that other people are going to get less of it. So uh, the money's going to go around, and your nominal incomes are going to go up. But at the same time, because you're spending more because there's more money in circulation, you're going to be bidding up the prices of goods and services relative to at least what it otherwise would have been. Until we get to the middleman, whose nominal income goes up by the same amount as his uh, as the prices he pays, so he's no better on or worse, worse off. But thereafter, prices are going to go up by more than nominal income goes up. And so uh, in real terms, the purchasing power of the later receivers is going to be lower. So it's just a whole redistribution uh exercise and, and and as you're exactly right who gets the money first well the government is one of the major ones in the corporations because why is it the case that um why is it the case that loads of corporations and and uh, insurance companies etc uh will lend uh the government money uh well to a larger thing because they know that um the if anything goes wrong with um needing to pay them back and they're trying to default they, they they probably know they probably won't do because well, the Bank of England will lend the money instead. Also, with quantitative easing, oh, would they know that they've always got a really big uh, buyer in the secondary market for any of the um, of the government's um, bonds that are issued? So it's it, you. So 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 big the insurance company could buy government bonds and then oh oh we're not create oh Bank of England goes oh we'll buy the bonds from you and it's basically just a welfare check. But as opposed to $1,200, it's more in the millions or possibly billions. Um, so, yeah, the corporations, uh, major, well, obviously the banks benefit because it keeps the banking system, gives them, quote unquote, liquidity. But those times it prints enough money to make it viable to do their crazy banking stuff that they do, which, of course, makes them better off. The government is made better off because they can spend more than they otherwise would be able to. I mean, historically, interestingly, uh, Louis XIV in the um, 17th, early 18th century uh, was very, found it very annoying that the Dutch, because they had a central bank, and now this is actually pre kind of fiat, but by proper sort of um, national, quote unquote, central bank, they could raise finance way easier than he could because he had to go to actual financiers and sort of like 
borrow money and you know if they didn't pay him back if they if he hadn't paid them back in previously they'd be like well we're going to charge you massive rates of interest he didn't have the same power uh that say the dutch or later on with the bank of england um so yeah it certainly makes it a lot cheaper and interesting i mentioned the bank of england because it goes into your um your point on war is um the bank of england was created in 1693 I remember the day rest 1994 basically so it made it easier for britain to fund the nine years war against france and um the um the central banking um is is something that's there uh to fund war i mean wh- why did nixon go off gold in 71 when you had to the gold is the gold was not the gold exchange standard it was the Bretton woods agreement with the sort of quasi um gold standard so just for anybody doesn't know um foreign central banks could redeem us dollars the federal reserve for gold um because this is the quasi gold standard that existed after Bretton woods in 40 something or other i think it started convened before the end of the second world war it was in 44 uh i could have got the date wrong there um so Nixon goes off. He said, why does he go off it? Well, because he can't redeem all the dollars. Why can't he redeem the dollars for gold? Well, because he printed so many dollars. Why they printed so many dollars? Well, for two reasons. One, the war on poverty with LBJ and the war in Vietnam, which was astonishingly expensive. Uh, war is by far the most expensive thing that uh, states can engage in. And so if you've got a um, ready supply of money to f- get cheap financing on it, uh, then this is um, what you're going to be able to do. So not only does it uh, facilitate domestic exploitation, it, it facilitates uh, foreign exploitation. So I, I think what you described uh, in your opening uh, monologue is entirely accurate. I want to move to the first question here. How, do, uh, how does this benefit? How does this benefit states to have their own currencies or own means of exchange? So the second, the the historical second world, which I think used to be like the, the Soviet sphere, which is China, Russia. Well, China is sort of separate, but China and Russia today and historically seem to know this. The hardcore Marxists seem to know this. Lenin seemed to think that you had to sort of get actually Lenin. They Lenin and Stalin, from my understanding, would hoard wanted sort of gold to redeem. They didn't want um, paper pieces. Um uh, uh, and China today is hoarding gold as well, from my understanding. Not that I'm crit- criticizing them. Um, but China and Russia seem to know this, that trading in dollars is sort of a, a kind of racket in a way. The trouble is, and they, neither of them has gone full WTO, from my understanding, full WTO. They have certain rules built in. Of course, the U.S. has certain rules built in as well, too. Um, you can sort of read sort of like Austrian critiques of like NATO or Austrian critiques of WTO. As well, I mean, they're you know they're opposite of free trade in a way. Um, now again, certain paleocon protectionists can make good points defending them. I, mean, I, w- I want to give credit to them because certain libertarians sort of just trash the the paleocons for no good reason here. But and, and as I point out, De Gaulle seemed to think having your own currency was sort of a element of sovereignty. Now again, the two of us here are sort of you know anarchists, conservative anarchists, Austrian anarchists, or some of that. So we want to get rid of states and have so far. But it seems like one element, you know, one element of being a functioning society is 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 having some control over your money. Again, there's degrees of exploitation here. Um, but but France, this was de Gaulle's d- desire 
he wanted two things. He wanted his own currency, he wanted nuclear weapons. Um, and having his own currency, now again, they eventually went to the euro, but they should still have somewhat control over it as well, um, seems to be, allow you to do things that others can't, other societies can't do. Now, this gets into the weeds of the wealth of the nations and how you get that position here. Uh, how do you get that position here? France, U.S., somewhat Russia, they were developed societies anyway. Um, so there's a certain, there's, there's other factors at play here. It's not the only factor. But I think it is a factor in which, for one thing, it allows you to, uh, even the exploitation happens, it happens, it stays within your society. So France could bail out its own corporations um, instead of, you know, using some other means of exchange. Now, again, it might be that gold's the best system to keep everyone honest or Bitcoin. But this, it seems like in this world of of dishonest central banks, at least your own society, the benefits are staying inside. Although alternatively, you might not want your benefits to stay in your own society. You want your benefits to accrue to some other society. But it still seems to lie that there's some sort of international politics. This is some, some sort of Hans Hoppe's lecture again at the Australian Mises seminar. I think it's fairly interesting here. These sort of you know, the international politics. So the second world, again, as I stated, seem to want to have control of the concurrency. Or were they right to? Now, again, we're sort of Austrians. What do you make of this point, Swithin? I do think countries, or states in particular, will want control of their own currency for a number of reasons. Um, one um, good example of this, actually, is you could argue that it, it could promote stability within your country. The interesting example here is um, Iceland in 2008. Um, the Icelandic Central Bank did not have the power to bail out the Icelandic corporations. The reason was most of their debts were in foreign currency. They were in yen and other, uh, and, and other cur uh, currencies, which meant that um, there was no way that they could get them to pay their debts off. Because if you had just increased the supply of the Icelandic Corona massively, that would have just appreciated it on the, on the foreign exchange markets. And so they'd be no better off because they just literally need even more uh, Icelandic Corona to buy the same amount of yen to be able to pay off the pay off their debts. Um, so having sort of debts and things nominated in your own currency allows you a lot more flexibility. Uh, than uh, you otherwise uh, would be able to have. Also, uh, in this regard as well, um, especially if the states subscribe, which they typically do some sort of Keynesianism, um, was uh, the Greeks wanted to leave the euro so they could go back into the drachma, basically because this would allow them to print loads more drachma than the, than the European Central Bank would produce euros. Um, so that they could... Um, well, I was going to say stimulate exports. The Greek doesn't, Greece doesn't, doesn't really stimulate many exports. But what it would have been able to do is massive ramp up tourism, which Greece do a lot of, because it'd be significantly cheaper for foreigners to go and take holidays in Greece, because a drachma would be basically worthless. And so I could convert like one pound into loads of drachma, and it'd end up being cheaper than going to Turkey. Because when I went to Greece 11 years ago, it was actually a relatively expensive country to visit, uh, much more expensive than I thought it would be when I went. Uh, cause I thought, well, it's just some sort of relatively bit of backwater Eastern European country on the Mediterranean. Can't be that expensive. And it was. Um, so um, if you control your currency, if you control a currency within your borders uh, you and everybody is using that, you have a lot more control um, over 
um, what happens in in your country, and especially as well with debts and things as well. If if you um, have a particular currency you have the control of the supply over, and you have a, a financing issue, it doesn't matter. Your central bank will just print it for you. Um, whereas if you're dependent on like US dollars or other things like that, they're not going to um, they're not going to step in and sort of provide you some liquidity, quote unquote, so that you can help, you know, so like the Africa. So, for example, um, Zimbabwe basically uses US dollars now uh, because, if, as you may or may not remember, the massive hyperinflation in uh, Zimbabwe, which led to the 100 trillion um, dollar note, uh, which they genuinely did produce in uh, Zimbabwe. Um, so having a uh, your own currency, which people accept, uh, means that uh, it's going to be easier for the state to maintain its control and be solvent, which is why I think they want to maintain control of their currency. Yeah, the politics of decentralization are interesting insofar as certain things that might on larger scale, one one group might think on a larger scale this is bad, but on a local scale, um, it could promote stability or so forth. Um, your example about Iceland being the, one of the classic examples here. Um, as far as your Greek example, when I went to Greece, um, it was actually fairly, uh, there's actually two ways, two things you could infer from this. When I went to Greece, it was fairly inexpensive uh, with, with regard to like the United States, uh, with regard to like United States or Western Europe. Uh, Greece was, I think it was something like, you get a decent hotel for 40 euros or 35 euros, very nice hotel for that, which is not that bad compared to U.S. Um, prices here. That was about four years ago. But but in there, in that kind of the, the sort of classical Marxist view is that more or less labor should be worth the same. And that there's a price differences here on the late the, the returns to labor with risk regard to labor. Again, it could, be, it could be explained by two existing things. It could be explained by the existing society's wealth, uh, or it could be explained by exploitation here. That's sort of, from my understanding, what it would be. Now, this is, another, again, it's a very common point that the sort of Austrians and Marxists, at least for the really good Austrians like Hoppe, point out that there is an affinity between the two analyses here. Um, now, what what explains this difference here? You know, what? Why are prices different in different societies, and what to what extent with them is it um, with regard to the you know the currency there, the currency generally? When I was in Egypt, for example, you could get very you get things for very cheap there. Again, what's interesting is like on is if there were international corporations and they weren't being sort of like racist against foreigners, if you got charged Egyptian prices, you would pay hardly anything. It'd be like you get a you get a whole dinner for like five U.S. dollars. Um, but if they, but they would just you if but but if if they didn't if you had a local guide to get you the cheaper prices and cut him a deal um, you get a better price. What explains the differences in prices? Is this a form of exploitation or is this just capital? Swithin? Differentials in uh, prices is not necessarily straightforward because what you would always expect if you had strictly homogenous products. You would expect that their prices would be equalized uh, in if you had to look at a world general equilibrium. Obviously, you would have to take into account transportation costs as well, but ultimately, you would expect 
um, those to be the same because otherwise, well, if you were selling in the high in the low price area, you take your goods and services and sell them in the high price area, which would then increase the supply in the high price area uh, and decrease the price and then decrease the supply in the low price area, increasing the price until they're equalized. So you would. Ex so why is it the case that it's so much cheaper to buy in other countries is an interesting question. Um, I suspect it is um, for the West, as it were, I, is the world standing, particularly the US dollar has, um, I think the Cantillon effects are effectively international. Um, and I, I think the, you, the, the pound has it as well because it's sort of like the financial center of the world to a large extent. And so uh, sort of piggybacks off uh, the Americans, even though it's a different currency, so it's part of the same sort of uh, world system. Basically, we can print money. And so in the case in the UK, we can buy loads of imports without actually making anything. Because you've got this money, it's like, oh, we don't make it. Oh, we'll buy it from foreigners instead. And I think this is the same thing that takes place when you're sort of going out there, is that your money is worth more than it basically should be. Because remember, this is like the international Cantillon effect. It's just taking time for it to dissipate throughout uh, these areas. Mm -hmm. And so I think you could plausibly make a case that um, the West is richer uh, in sort of buying uh, goods from uh, the third world because of sort of the um, the position that the, the currency holds. So, I mean, take, take the US dollar. I mean, the US dollar is basically international reserve currency, which was cemented really after the Bretton Woods Agreement. Um, the the US dollar is well, you, well, depending on how you, to what extent you take this, this, this um, the theory seriously. Um, one of the reasons I heard as to why the Iraq War really took place wasn't primarily over oil, but that um, Saddam Hussein was attempting to um, trade uh, oil in euros rather than dollars, uh, because. And, and so they invaded for that reason primarily, and that was also one of the arguments as to why. Interestingly, everybody went after Gaddafi, um, despite being a relatively benign figure internationally. Obviously, internally, you could argue he's repressive, which is perfectly reasonable. But from, my, from memory, he didn't really go out and, oh, well, no, he, he did some fun, some terrorism activities. That, 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 that's, that's to be fair. But everybody went after him because, well, one of the theories is, you know, he wanted to create a pan-African gold dinar. Um, so uh, there's at least theories, uh, and to, to what extent they're borne out by facts is an empirical question. But it does seem to be the case that the Americans are very concerned about keeping the um, the dollar in its international uh, premier position because it basically keeps up the value of the dollar relative to what it otherwise would be. Because if everyone stops trading um, oil and other commodities in dollars, then the demand for the dollar goes down, therefore prices dominating dollars goes up. Um, so I do think that, as it were, relative to quote unquote natural order, the US dollar is significantly overvalued. Um, but I suppose what it, you could say in defense of the current system is, well, the currencies of all these other countries are a lot worse than the US dollar. Um, so for example, I was talking to a guy in um, Syria uh, and he was saying, like, nobody wants to use a Syrian pound. It's it's just it loses its value all the time. They they all want to trade in dollars. So you could argue in a way that the dollar is providing a sort of superior um, it's it's the cleanest, dirtiest shirt. 
Yeah, yeah, you could you could make that case, but I still think it is the case that you do get the international Cantillon effect. Um, so I, I, I think it's kind of both, um, really. Uh, although this is interesting as an aside, where El Salvador becomes interesting because they now have Bitcoin as legal tender, and the um, El Salvadorian government will buy uh, your Bitcoin also, from your current US dollar but prices. Also was it was uh, Zimbabwe uses US dollars? That's true. Um, but to my knowledge, they haven't got the same similar system as uh, El Salvador's with Bitcoin. Uh, because again, El, El Salvador just sort of they were just a tin pot nation, and I suspect they attempted to have their currency at one point, but then no one used it because it was rubbish. Uh, but I think this is interesting though with currencies, and you want to use them over bigger areas. It's just sort of the natural uh, progression of money to so basically be a single world currency with caveats. Because well, it makes trading easier. So as it were, having sort of like the dollar in per se, or or a currency which is which transcends sort of national or sort of political boundaries, isn't necessarily something you wouldn't want. Um, but um, as I say, the El Salvador government Bitcoin experiment could be interesting because that could then re- mean that the sort of uh, developing world stop using the US dollar in the same way. Although, of course, this is going to be largely dependent on infrastructure as well, because it could be electronic and things. Uh, as an aside with that, uh, I was talking to my brother and he said he was talking to a missionary, I think, in Haiti. And everybody, it was Haiti. And when everybody goes to church in Haiti, they always plug their phones in because the church is like one of the few buildings that has electricity. Um, Bitcoin isn't going to do very well in Haiti uh, until it gets more electricity. Um, so, so that'll put a dampener on it to some extent. Um, but um, yeah, uh, dollar, uh, yeah, the international counting on effects are, are 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 a thing. I think that's must be. It's going to be at least part of the explanation. I would also argue there's regional uh, Cantillon effects in within the United, within Britain, within the United States, within society as well. You know, you get you know central sort of peripheral areas. Get it low, get get you know get get the money later than central areas, uh, and so forth. So I think it happens on multiple levels. Here. Oh, just to interrupt, I, I think that's definitely true. Uh, London uh, is just an absolute black hole. It was the centre of the financial stuff, and it's going to be the, the the area that's going to get all the new money first. And it isn't particularly surprising then that that's like the richest area in the country, and basically everywhere else it seems to sort of basically poor in comparison because it just sucks everything up. And I think that's large. I mean, there's lots of um, there is subsidised more of infrastructure spending in London than in other places as well. But certainly, I think the financial, especially because of the city of London being such a big part of the UK economy, I think as well related to that. I had a look around. I think Britain is probably one of the most centralised countries in the world when it comes to sort of like GDP generation. I think like London produces of any country I could come across produce way more GDP than like any other. Even more of comparable population. I mean, Germany is much more sort of dispersed in that respect. But continue. But uh, I will move on to the um, move on to the the euro because the euro to me is one of the interesting currencies here. And there's always there's always as you brought up the word conspiracy theory, but there's always things are always operating on different levels here. You know, on the one hand, it's a regional currency. On the one hand, it's a national currency for Germany and France to sort of try to control Europe. Um, but by, but but then to keep the keep the U.S. away. Um, so the euro to me remains interesting. What is the euro's relationship in this scheme of 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 we'll say Cantian effects? The, the, the European central bank seems to have more power than let's say the Zimbabwe bank. But then Europeans, as I said before, France, Germany, they are developed very 
you know, intelligent, productive societies. We're not dealing with societies of, you know, losers here. Um, so I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not saying that here. Uh, again, there's always other factors at play here. Uh, but it seems like they've managed to keep. Now, it might be bad for the eastern countries, Poland, Greece, and so forth. Um, but you know, to what extent Kantian effects occur in Europe here, and to what extent does this, you know, centralized power, and what is, to what extent is it to keep, you know, the Americans or the Chinese out here? What do you make of that, Swithin? Well, with respect to Kantian effects, um, in a way, I think it actually, well, it did. It actually, oddly, in this case, benefited the poorer countries in the in the uh, EU. Um, this is the point made up very clearly uh, by Philip Bagus um, in uh, Tragedy of the Euro. Uh, he was also the author on uh, The Big Freeze, which is a book on the Icelandic uh, crash. Um, what the, joining, the reason why the Mediterranean countries wanted to join the euro was that, well, for, for a couple of reasons. One, it meant that the euro was going to be stronger than their domestic currencies were because they would have had like crazy inflation rates. I mean, the Italian lira before they went onto the euro, the lowest denomination of coin they produced was 100. Uh, the, the exchange rate of the pound to the, um, the peseta in Spain was like 200 pesetas to a pound. Um, they'd, or, I mean, Italy was like a couple of thousand liras to the pound. I mean, th- these are countries that clearly had huge levels of inflation. Um, and they also had very bad sort of records financially, historically. So corporations, other people wouldn't really lend to them very much. So they found it relatively difficult to find people who would lend them money. And obviously they could print it, but of course, of course, a lot more inflation. So they found it more difficult to do that. Uh, so when they joined the euro, they got the cachet of the Germans. And the implicit thing was, oh, well, you know, if stuff goes wrong, you know, the Germans will back everything up. And so what it meant was, was that Portugal, Spain, uh, Italy, Greece, etc., were able, their governments were now be able to borrow at much lower interest rates than they otherwise would have been able to. Um, and so they could splurge on uh, government spending. I mean, in Greece, before the crash, I'm pretty sure that everybody was entitled to a, ho- a Greek citizen was entitled to a holiday uh, paid for by the Greek government, they would pay paid you for by go. paid for by German taxpayers and workers. <laughs> yes, basically, yes, yeah. And related to that as well, um, Greece in particular, I think, joined the undervalued the drachma. No, sorry, they overvalued the drachma. So when they converted into um, uh, to euros, they basically got more euros than they should have done. So actually, the Greeks were made better off, and the Germans, on the other hand, the German political class wanted to undervalue the Deutschmark. This was at the behest primarily of the German exporters because Germany, you know, comparatively, were rather was sane. It was basically the sanest guy in the asylum, like post like Second World War when it comes came to uh, central banking. And so the Deutschmark was relatively strong. We should always annoy the exporters because it meant that you know the prices of their exports were relatively higher because it meant that foreigners needed to spend more foreign currency to buy the same amount of including um, the Americans, yeah, including yeah. the Americans. Yeah. Um, and so they undervalued the Deutschmark when they went onto the euro deliberately to aid the, the German exporter. Again, it's impoverished the, uh, the German taxpayer. So in this case, oddly, the, the Germans have uh, now I suppose you could argue this form of class warfare. You know, it's if, if you're connected to the German exporters, whether you're probably now have a higher income than you otherwise would have. And so you could say um, if you look at this, it's like the, the middle class in Germany. 
that's created the value and um, this has then been expropriated and then sent down to uh, the Mediterranean uh, and, and also uh, has sort of implicitly subsidized the exporting industries. Um, but so 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 the euro is interesting when it comes to that. But as with the euro, the euro is primarily a political um, process. Interestingly, according to Philip Baggers, argues that the French were some of the biggest behind it. He argues that the French basically blackmailed the Germans into accepting it because otherwise they would have um, kicked up a fuss about German reunification. Uh, the reason being is the French always hated the, the fact that the Deutschmark was strong. Uh, and so basically by making them join the euro, this would um, uh, make it cheaper effectively for uh, the Fra France to buy German goods uh, and also make them look less bad internationally when, the, again, the franc lost value. Again, the franc was like 10, pounds to a, 10 francs to a pound. And even historically, I mean, I mean basically at one point you took a couple of zeros off because, again, they had massive France's inflation, uh, inflation in France, that is. So the euro is kind of complicated. Um, but again, the same Cantillon effects would, would occur because, again, when they print the euro and whatever, it's going to go to the banking sector and make major corporations to, and, and the governments first. Uh, but you did get this interesting regional one, which actually ended up to, to a large extent subsidizing at least the governments and the beneficiaries in the poorer countries. So it, in a way that kind of went in a slightly different way than you would normally expect. Yeah, at the one PFS society, there was a Q&A said there's a problem. There's, there's rail lines in Italy and Spain paid for by German taxpayers. Of, of course, there's always multiple. There's multiple levels. These effects happen here. I move into my final question here, which is, you know, you know, what what ought to be done in a way or or what ought not to be done here? Again, we're both some sort of, you know, right wing conservative anarchist of some variety, um, Austrians of some variety here. So. Uh, Brian Kaplan has an interesting thought experiment once, and this was in a sort of obscure debate here with, I forget who it was here, but um, he has two islands, Island A and Island B. Island A has perfect Misesian Rothbard gold bank, um, no fractional reserves, and, I, and Society B has MMT, let's just say full MMT bank. Um, and if the two societies trade with one another, what would the effects happen of Society A, the, you know, the grade A society and Society B? The, the the grade B society because this sort of brings up I I in the back of my I'm always somewhat sympathetic to conservatives who critique free trade on the grounds that it could if if society B is undermining its industry you know this was one of the Trump's critiques you know that they'll they'll do this or that now again he'll still also say they'll steal intellectual property of course which you know again Kinsella that's not we, we we don't we that's not a claim but there's also other complaints tom woods had a debate here not tom woods itself but two people on the tom woods show had a debate over uh you know protectionist tariffs and so forth you know well you know if society b is undermining is giving huge aid boeing and airbus do this all the time you know trump went to the saudis because they were i think airbus boeing was accusing airbus of of basically getting a subsidy i mean but then again boeing gets subsidies too um, but, um, you know, Trump more or less got Boeing to buy the Saudis to buy up some uh, 737s or something recently. Well, this is like in 2019 or so. Um, so there's always sort of interesting, there's interesting effects of like, you know, what you know, if you're free trade in a society, if you're a free trading society. Now, again, arguably Iceland and Germany are in a way the closest to, you know, so to speak, the natural standard or the you know the exploitation free standard 
you know, what would be the politics? Of course, the third world has its own problems in a way, but in a way, delineating their currency in U.S. dollars seems to they, they'd be at the very bottom end of the cantilene effects. And this again, as I say, this is sort of this is the Marxists have certain true pieces of their analysis idea. I don't think they can identify a utopia or an exchange-free society here, um, but um, there are there are interesting sort of wrinkles here. So what ought to be done if you're, let's say you're in the very well-protected city-state that's sort of, um, you know, Rothbard land, and then, you know, what ought to be done? Again, they could come and invade you. So there's, a, in one talk that Nassim Taleb had once, um, someone brought up the aircraft theory of money, which I always thought he called the battleship theory of money. He says that he controls the battleships and controls the money supply. Oh, way, that's true. Um, but so, so long as you don't get invaded by the society that has the M&T bank, um, um, what, what, what should that society do? Uh, should they start printing money? Now, of course, many of their producers would then just say, let's go to straight to gold or something like that because they're rational. You don't have to go full rational. Maybe it's out of patriotism or loyalty. But what ought to be done here? Swithin? Well, if you have the MMC bank, MMC land and Rothbard land, I mean, I I think the obvious thing would be that um, effectively the Rothbard land would be on 100% gold standard with uh, full reserves. And MMC land would be crazy fiat currency. Now, they would just need to have a way of distinguishing which was sort of Rothbardian currency in which was MMT currency. Um, in that case, one would expect that the MMT land would just, uh, well, their currency would end up uh, collapsing in value on the international currency markets. Now, the question arises, well, why doesn't that happen to the, with the US dollar? Well, obviously, MMT land could try and keep it up with the power of the military. But it's an interesting aside with that. I had a discussion with a guy once who claimed that actually that the, the value of the dollar was um, cemented because of the U.S. military. And I was arguing, well, the, um, the central banking kept the U.S. military going. And I think there's probably bits of both at certain points that sort of um, allowed it to um, get the power of it that it has today. Uh, but I imagine Rothbard, if it was to go full gold, it should be fine. Um, now, does that mean there can't be any county on effects? No, probably not. But um, the extent to which um, the extent to which you've you yourself have got a pretty solid currency, I mean, you should be you should have less of these issues. So I suppose my point Let me use is aside, Swithin. let's say Rothbard Land has a uh, motorcycle dealership and let's say Japan has big motorcycle dealership as well. Suzuki will say and they they've been known to do two things, print money and give subsidies to them. Should Rothbard land make motorcycles in that regard? Should, you know, what if they say, oh, this is unfair. Um, this, you know, we have to compete against um, them. You could just say, well, then they shouldn't, and they, then it's just not economically feasible to do so, um, which, which, which in a way is a fair answer, which in a way is a fair answer. Um, but, but then certain goods just aren't able to be produced. It, which, which again, that might be the fairest answer. That's the most rational answer. Uh, in a perfect world, there'd be no, you know, it'd just be whatever the, you know, the carrying costs are. So, what, what would you say to that? Well, I would say that, okay, Suzuki are subsidized by the Japanese government, fine. Um, 
oh, well, we must protect Rothbard land. But then the question is, well, what if um, what if they subsidize them so much that Suzuki could give the, the, the bikes away free in Rothbard land? But it seems to be make economic sense to go, oh, we'll um, we'll not take the Suzuki's. That would seem to be bizarre. But you go, no, no, free stuff is bad. Go away. Now, obviously, you can make an argument or we might become dependent on them. And then, but, you know, if, if you take sufficient steps to go, yeah, OK, we know this might not last forever. So, you know, so so if you treat it like I'm given money by the government, you know, I shouldn't just assume the money is always going to remain there and put like a, um, a contingency fund in for when it stops, I can continue as well, as normal as I can. Um, that would be the analogous um, approach I would make, because effectively what's happening is if the Japanese government is subsidizing Suzuki's, um, what that really means is almost like a forced gift from Japanese taxpayers. It's a gift. Take it. Now, does that mean that there's no um, no disturbance or there's not going to be a situation where the Japanese government can cease to subsidize the Suzuki's and then they go rocketing in price and there's no and there's no bikes being produced in um, in Rothbard land? Yeah, sure. That's, of course, possible. Um, but um, I, I would say you, you've got to then take this on an economic level, but also on a, a more metapolitical level is what's your ultimate goal? What's your destination? Um, if you're going to have if you want to have a, if you want to have Rothbard land, you're going to end up not having Rothbard land. The extent to which you start trying to regulate uh, inflows and outflows of uh, goods and taxes to try quote unquote level the playing field. You should take the position. We do what we do in Rothbard land. What you do in Japan is different. OK, we're not going to invade you. And we're just going to deal with it in the same way you do deal with the fact that we do things our way. And I think that's really a sort of a general political uh, approach of sort of decentralization is the only real way uh, you can go about it. Because even if you could make a short run economic argument that, oh, well, you know, if we did all these little bits of intervention, assuming you knew how to do them properly, which I would doubt, um, you then setting in other incentives in play for growth of bureaucracies, et cetera, et cetera. And then Rothbard land ceases to be Rothbard land. We'll move on from Rothbard from I had another question. Um, that that's a very specialization. That's a very good answer. We'll move on from Rothbard land. And let's say we'll have Fidel Castro land, um, or or El Salvador land. Um, this is sort of tie the two points together. My final question here: What should what should they what should they do? Um, in a way, you know, there's certain there's certain imperial expeditions which might be outright imperial. They're not really done, you know. There's there's sort of the rhetoric and then there's the then then there's the reality here. Um, some of them are closer to the rhetoric than some of them are closer to, re, to the the reality here. Um, what what should um if you're if you're in the uh, third world so to speak, um, what should you do? Should you go to should you go to gold? Should you go to Bitcoin? Would that be instead of denominating your currencies in U.S. dollars due to Cantillon effects here? What what? What should they do? Now, again, you could always say, well, having centralized powers is bad to begin with. And I agree. I agree. Uh, but in a way, you know, this is what must be done to get to a you know, slightly marginally better uh, environment. I mean, again, I'm not I, I, I don't view myself as a, I think the term is sociopath. I don't resent other countries or other societies from going get becoming poor um, necessarily. Maybe France resents Germany to being richer than them. Um, 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 again, this happens on multiple levels here. 
Um, but if it's for legitimate reasons, then in a way you should try to protect yourself against that. And same way Rothbard land um, should, try, should specialize there. What do you make of what, what should Che Guevara land on? Of course, there's a lot of problems with <laughs> all other areas here. Uh, but I, I do think on this aspect, it is somewhat interesting. Well, I, I would say, you know, you've got to look at what is possible in uh, practically feasible in your area. But I would definitely look at some form of hard currency, uh, possibly silver as, as well as gold. Um, Bitcoin is a possibility that might be the easiest in certain circumstances. Although the problem with trying to roll out Bitcoin is um, is, is the electricity issue. The third world don't have it. I mean, I was watching a, a, a documentary, uh, a, a food program. It was in Morocco. And he got, the, the, the presenter goes to the butcher and all the chickens are still alive. And he has to point to the one he wants to eat. And he goes out back, chops head off, uh, plucks it and gives it to him warm because they don't have fridges. I mean, so the, the, the problem with Bitcoin in the third world is the electricity issue. Now, El Salvador, I think, went for the Bitcoin thing because El Salvador didn't even have their own currency. They just use US dollars. I don't, they may have had historically. I'm not sure on that, but they currently do not have a national currency in the same way Zimbabwe don't. So uh, what you're looking at there is things similar to like the Mises plan or the Rothbard plan to um, uh, re-monetize the currency. Now, this might be a good idea for them to do it in concert to have like a a greater demand for this sort of gold currency between sort of in a regional area rather than a national one potentially. But uh, you know, if I was Cuba, for instance, I would be I'd be definitely be looking at you know gold, silver um, as as a backing. I mean, it even doesn't doesn't even need to be a hundred percent. Let's say you're a sugar grower in Cuba. Let's say if you're like a sugar co-op in Cuba. Well, you just got to use what you, what's best to hand. I mean, you don't really have much choice. You just use what's there. Um, but um, if you do the Cuban government or, or whatever, you, you, you find something you could do. You partially um, you partially back it. You may have like fractional reserves to some extent, maybe. But at least there's that, that commodity component behind it, which is going to give your currency some value uh, because it's got some alternative uses. Um, and I think this would be a way of uh, of stabilizing and insulating themselves to some extent against uh, county on effects if they just continue to US dollar. Then the question arises, why haven't they done it? Well, they might not have very much access to any precious metals. That's possible. Or they might think, well, it's not worth it. Or maybe they've just got bad economics uh, or it's the case that they've got real plans to just bring in a national fiat currency because that gives the state the most power. So as to why they don't do it, I don't know. Maybe it's not technically feasible, uh, but that would be certainly my advice. Uh, if they have more electricity, possibly Bitcoin may be a better option in the short term. But um, if you've got a situation whereby you still got a lot of cash transactions and et cetera, and it's all in hand and whatever, then, you know, some form of hard currency. Uh, um, conversion certainly what I would I would suggest. My my final point here, and this is my final point, um, is the effects domestically. One of the negative effects for the first world, especially the United States, is probably the growth of like the um your point about you know which 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 gives it the power, the military or the the pre-existing economic position. It's probably both, but it makes the arms companies in the United States and Britain, which again you know 
Sean Gabb and certain English liber- people can complain that their standing has declined somewhat, which it clearly has, but they still should be, have a fairly large deal in the arms trade, especially per capita, considering their size, so does the French. Um, and part of that's due to just competence and intelligence, but um, it makes certain industries which one doesn't like or not like as much, not to say they're per se illegitimate, um, bigger. I mean, companies like Lockheed and Boeing are huge divisions of, and, and again, it all filters down to MIT. You know, they always, they always joke for one of the good one-liners to go after Chomskyites is he works at MIT. Um, you know, all sorts of institutions seem to be propped up by, uh, uh, you, know, you know, this is the counterfactual claim. You know, if things were different, uh, what would be, maybe instead of investing in aircraft carriers, you could invest in, I don't know, nicer homes or nicer consumer goods or things like that. Um, interesting enough, I mean, this is one of the critiques that you can make of the Soviet Union, for example, is instead of investing in consumer goods, they invested in submarines and, uh, ex, you know, expensive uh, projects to expensive invasions in Afghanistan again. Um, so those are sort of the counterfactual effects here. You know, so it does it. You know, if it is exploitation, and we can sort of go into a rabbit hole about what is and isn't, and in some some way that's entirely semantics at some level. Um, I generally think you know it, it, it's, it's sort of you know it when you see it. Um, um, it does sort of have domestic effects. You know, different industries might be preferable. So I think, what do you make of that? And that's my final comment. I enjoyed this discussion. Uh, thank you very much for doing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you are right. I mean, the the, the length of government uh, subsidy and who benefits and whatever goes um, very, very, very far down uh, with the arms contractors and MIT, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it is all very difficult to um, to work out. But the, the, the key point is Cantillon effects exist and they exist internationally. Um, basically, when it comes to... Um, Current standards of living, the West is is higher than it probably otherwise would be. Now, of course, with another currency, you may be richer for other reasons, but everything else being equal, yes, the, it, it is a way of taking Persian power away from the third world. Uh, if you did enjoy this, uh, just now thank everyone for listening. Um, if you have enjoyed this, please share it with your friends and family or any of you think who have enjoyed this. Uh, the higher we get, the more subscribers we get. Uh, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcryingliberty show at gmail.com. That's mindcryingliberty show at gmail.com. <laughs>